prominent example is the teachings of Jesus. Where, and I had you read those verses uh, this week where Jesus said, this is going to happen. That, pe- that false teachers are going to come and they're going to lead people astray. Now, would those teachings have been available? Absolutely yes. In fact, Mark definitely was written down and being distributed by this time, and likely there was a booklet of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, being distributed as the Gospel of Jesus at this time. So yeah, the sayings of Jesus or the teaching of Jesus would be one place where the Spirit clearly says. But I think Paul may also have in mind his own teaching, what, what the Spirit had revealed to Paul about what was to come. Because remember, Paul wrote everything that we have in the New Testament written by Paul, what he was writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was speaking through Paul. And much of what Paul had already written, uh, this was written late, in 2 Timothy even later. So Paul had already written much of the other letters that he'd written. And remember I had you read Acts 20, where he warns the elders at Ephesus, and that's before he wrote 1 Timothy, look, A day's coming when false teachers, when wolves are going to come in and try and steal the sheep. So I think both of those are examples of where the Spirit had clearly said those things. And he refers to the time that this is going to happen as in later times. This is different than the last days. In later times. What does that mean? Well, Judaism taught that there were two ages. The present age, which is all of Earth's history, and the age to come, which is the time after the end of Earth's history. Christianity teaches something similar, that there is a time when history as we know it will end and there will be an age to come. But Christianity teaches that in some sense, as believers, we already participate in that life. That that age has dawned, that new age has dawned, but it has not been completely consummated yet. That our eternal life begins when we trust Christ. So there is a time that began with the coming of Jesus um, and will, will last until his return. That is a new covenant, a time of a new covenant, a new age, often called the church age. It is the time in which Paul lived, and it is the time in which we are still living today. And that's the time that Paul is talking about here. So he's saying it's already happening. This, these are the later days. Paul's days are the later days, our days are the later days. Uh, Our days are the later days. So uh, there's a time that is coming when false teachers will arrive. And and the Old Testament and Jesus um, and and Paul all prophesied about this time. And and that you can read it in Joel, I think. Uh, It was a time, it was prophesied to be a time when the Spirit would be poured out. Uh, and, And of course that began with Acts 2. But it's also a time when scoffers will come. And the wording in the Greek here and what we see throughout Scripture is that the prophecy is that this will worsen, that it will get worse. And I don't think any of us can deny that that is the case, that, prophe- that excuse me, heresy continues to abound. And then Paul says that these things um, are taught by demons, deceiving spirits, and things taught by demons. Now, he says people will abandon the faith, which means they will intentionally turn away or they will renounce the faith to follow these false doctrines taught by demons. Now, the doctrines are literally taught by human beings, but it is clear that the source 
behind that teaching, the driving force behind that teaching, is the demonic world, and in fact, Satan himself. Satan is using willing human partners to be sure, and Paul next turns his attention to them. This is what he says about the false teachers. They forbid people to marry. Oh, wait a minute. No, I didn't want to do that yet. Never mind. Uh, uh, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Um, So these people are hypocritical liars. That's very strong words to use. And he gives us here three characteristics of these false teachers. First of all, they are not what they seem to be. They are hypocrites in the truest sense. Secondly, what they teach is false. It's lies. They're liars, and they are teaching lies. And the third thing is that their consciences are seared. Now, what does that mean, to have a seared conscience? Well, it's possible that it means like with a branding iron that they have been branded as belonging to Satan, but I think that's unlikely because the word used here literally means to cauterize. In fact, in the Greek, it's like cauterizo or something. I mean, it it sounds just like cauterize with a K. So um, I already have enough Greek words on the board, so I chose not to put that one up there. Um, So what, what it literally means is to become hardened or to be uh, unfeeling. Uh, and, and that's what this means. They have become hardened. They have lost all spiritual sensitivity, all sense of right and wrong. Their thinking, their, their souls have been cauterized. Um, and then he gives us this small glimpse into their teaching. He says, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. I'm not sure he created Cheetos. I just want to make sure we all understand. It is a brightly colored food, which we are all told is good to eat, but I don't think that's... uh, I think Frito-Lay created Cheetos. Anyway, um, for everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So this small glimpse in the teaching tells us two things that they're teaching. One is you cannot marry. They forbid marriage just flat out. Uh, You're not supposed to marry. What they did with people who are already married, I have no idea. Um, And then secondly, they were to abstain from certain foods. So we can tell from this teaching not much. We can can tell from this passage that it was a teaching that, that, um, uh, that was leaning toward asceticism. Asceticism is the denial of certain legitimate uh, pleasures, of physical, certain legitimate physical pleasures like eating. Um, or marriage, um, which is mostly a pleasure most of the time. Uh, and so it, it, it was sort of this, this uh, ascetic teaching. It was also probably an early form of what later became known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism taught that um, physical things, uh, temporal things were evil, that things of this world, of the physical world, were, were evil. Only spiritual things were good. Uh, that was not, Gnosticism was not fully developed at this point, but it was probably a precursor to Gnosticism. So what's wrong with this? I mean, you, you read and you go, okay, don't eat certain foods and don't marry. What's the big deal about that? Well, at its core, at, it, at, 
at its basis, this teaching is ingratitude toward God, even rejection of God, because God created such things for us to enjoy. To re- this is what uh, Dr. Liefeld says about it. To reject food or marriage, well, he says reject food, and I would add marriage. To reject food is to negate God's creative work. To receive it and be thankful is to acknowledge that work and our dependence on God. The picture I got in my head as I was reading through this again this morning was uh, a little um, round piece of plaster that I now own that has a rather chubby little hand imprinted in it, which is five-year-old Amy's chubby little hand. My sisters originally gave me for my mother's house the wrong one. And I took it to them and I said, this is not my plaster hand. These bony little fingers, this is not my plaster hand. This is Missy's plastered hand. Uh, And I gave this to my mother, and to her dying day, it was on her dresser. It meant something to her. But what if little chubby Amy would have brought her little five-year-old handprint and said, here, Mommy, I made this at kindergarten for you. And she would have gone, yeah, right, I don't want that. Would I have felt rejected? Absolutely. Not only would she have been ungrateful for what I had given her, but it would have been a rejection. That's what these people are doing. They're rejecting the good gifts that God gave them because he loved them to enjoy. And they're turning around and saying, yeah, you know what, we don't want your gift. Uh, And so these false teachers are not just ungrateful, they're in some sense in rebellion toward God in this teaching. It is, in fact, an insidious heresy because we are to receive God's gifts with gratitude. Paul's emphasis here is on how we receive the gift. And that we are to receive God's gift, in this case food, and likely also marriage, with gratitude. And what Paul is implying here is a conscious act of accepting the food from the hand of the God who created it. And at the same time, acknowledging our dependence on him. Lord, we thank you for this food because we know that without you, we wouldn't have it. In science right now, uh, Lane and I are studying astronomy this year. Lane and I are studying. It's true. And, and we're on the earth. And we, the earth is just perfectly situated where it is for us to be alive and to flourish. Change one little thing, the way the earth's tilted, how far it is from the sun, what it's made of, its atmosphere, and we all die. There are no crops. There are no oceans. God, we are dependent upon God for that food. And when we bless the food, that's what we're saying. God, thank you. We need you and what you have given us. All of which makes grace before a meal much more than just some sort of perfunctory prayer. Or at least it should be. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that we consecrate it? Because that's kind of a weird thing. What's he, what's he saying? Or, you know, it's like holy water or something? Um, and, and what he's saying is that things that are normally secular, that are not religious in nature, they're just normal things, such as food, become sanctified, meaning they become handed over to God when we pray and thank God for them. And so, and, the, and when he says by the word of God in prayer, he, he means the, probably the truth of God. And so when we pray God's truth over our food, we are essentially saying, God, this food belongs to you. And we are consecrating it with that prayer. All of which, in this this whole first five verses, just brought two things clearly to mind to me. And the first one, I'm going to quote Dr. Leefield because I think he says it so well. 
He says, God has created a wonderful world to be enjoyed. Beauty, order, color, fragrance, and form, among, among many other delights. We are to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. And the second thing that this, just these verses, especially the first couple of verses, brought clearly to mind is um, that the emphasis on, Paul gives on the source of the heresy being Satan. And it reminds us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of this dark world. If you want to read more about that, it's in uh, Ephesians 6 that he writes this. We had better believe this and be aware of it and be prepared for it or else we, uh, we risk being swallowed up by the very uh, false teaching that Paul calls us to combat. Well, let's go on uh, to Paul's teaching in verses 6 uh, through 10. In verse 6 he says, if you point out these things, uh, if you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. That word for brought up literally means to be nourished. And in fact, in the Greek, it's in the present tense, having been brought up. And it gives a picture of this being a continuing thing. Not just something that you were brought up. You are being brought up. You continue to be nurtured in the word of God, in the things of God. I love that, that word nourished. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how we should be feeding on God's word and be nourished by God's word? And then he tells Timothy to train himself to be godly. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now, don't take umbrage at him saying, calling uh, these teachings old wives' tales. He's not being anti-woman. It was an idiomatic saying of the day that basically meant fairy tales. And so he's calling the teaching of the false teachers fairy tales. They're false, they're lies. Um, and then he says, train yourself to be godly. I want to look at the structure of those because he begins by saying, for physical training is of some value. In the Greek, what it says is physical training for a few things is beneficial. Physical training is not his point. It's, you know, it's a good thing for this world. But it's not his point. The emphasis is on the second thing he says. He says godliness or training in godliness, Eusebia, for all things is beneficial. And I left Brooklyn's little drawing up there because I just thought it was so doggone cute. But for all things it is beneficial because it holds promise, not just for this life, but for the life to come as well. Um, and that is Paul's point. The point isn't either pro-exercise or anti-exercise. And, and preachers have taught both. That Paul's telling Timothy, go out and get some exercise. No, Paul's telling him, ah, you might just get hit by a car, don't exercise. Uh, that's not his point. In fact, his point is, isn't physical training at all. He's using that as a point of comparison. Physical training is a good thing, and it is physically beneficial now, but only now in this life. By comparison, and this is his point, training in godliness is beneficial in all things because it is lasting. It has lasting, even eternal 
benefits. It benefits us now and forever. And then he has this trustworthy saying. Uh, and I wrote about this in the lesson, but it, in the NIV it says, this is a trustworthy saying. Um, well, isn't that interesting? That's not what it says. I'm going to have to break out my beast of a Bible. No, actually, I'm not going to. I'm going to use this because this is the NIV. I, don't, I have no idea how that happened, but let's, uh, let's look it up here. It says, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that all men, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So, um, this is a trustworthy saying. The problem is that is that, that word, this, can uh, be interpreted this, meaning what's coming up next, or it can be interpreted that, which is meaning what just happened, what I just said. And it depends on the context, which way you interpret it. So the NIV has chosen, and this, this would be like a completely different version of the Bible than the NIV. I don't know what we would call this. But the NIV has chosen to say this is a trustworthy saying, and the trustworthy saying is what comes after it, that we have put our hope in God. Um, I think it's the NRSV has that as a trustworthy saying. The trustworthy saying is physical training is of some value, but training in godliness has value for all things, uh, both now and in the life to come. So which is it? I would lean tentatively because of the um, three commentaries I read, they had two different opinions. And these are good, I mean, these are, you know, well-known theologians. So uh, I would just tentatively say that I would say that it is talking about uh, the godliness um, statement for a couple of reasons. So it should be that is a trustworthy saying, that for, for physical training has, it has some value, but uh, got training in godliness has value for all things. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First, it's the, it, it, grammatically, it's the closest thing to it. And, and secondly, it, um, it sounds more like a saying. This is a saying. Physical training is of some value, and uh, godliness is of permanent value. Um, and then also, verse 10, I don't even know if it's up there. Verse 10 um, begins with the word for. For this we labor and strive. The word for usually means because. And so it seems to be giving a reason for what has been said. And I think that is the reason for what has been said. Um, so what Paul is generally saying then is we labor and strive because we want to be trained in godliness so that we might enjoy its eternal benefits. And because, because and the NIV interprets that word that, but it can also mean because, we have put our hope in God. Dr. Walt Liefeld says the general flow of this section is this. We hope in God, the Savior, and thus we work hard. We do this because of the promise of life to come that rewards training in godliness. Uh, so I think that's just the general flow of what's going on there. And then, and then I think this part is up this. Uh, we have put our hope in God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. What does that mean? Well, it can't be universalism, which we have discussed before that it means all men. It could be that by the word savior, it means that God provides for or uh, providentially cares for all men, which is true. And it is, that is the, um, 
the common meaning of the word Savior in ancient Greek, but I don't, it's not the common meaning of the word Savior in Scripture. So I don't think that that's it. it. It could be that Paul means by this all kinds of men, which we've seen before. Um, but I don't think that's the ultimate answer e- either. I think the best answer is this, that um, what Paul is saying, uh, oftentimes in Scripture the word all means all believers, not all human beings. And so Paul is referring to believers. And this is sort of complicated by the fact that the NIV has chosen uh, to say, and especially of those who believe, but actually the better translation of that would mean, I mean those who believe. And so what this verse would say then is, uh, we put our hope in God, who is the Savior of all men, I mean those who believe. By all, I mean those who believe. And that makes perfect sense. Basically, Paul is saying what is said throughout Scripture, that God is the Savior of all who believe. Uh, And then we have our last two verses of encouragement to Timothy. No, we don't. I'm sorry, I skipped down. We have uh, the last seven verses or something like that of his encouragement to Timothy. And we're going to start with verses 11 through 14. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. So again, we see this word parangelo, to command, a personal but strong word, uh, a little stronger than exhort, Um, but a personal and strong word. And and he says, command these things. And he said that several times. What are these things that he's commanding? Well, because it occurs repeatedly in 1 Timothy, it likely means everything that Paul has taught in this letter that applies to Ephesus. So command them everything that I am telling you. And then he says, don't let them look down on you because you're young. Well, how young was he? I mean, you know, he'd been pulled out of Lystra, years earlier, how young was this boy? Well, actually, the word young could mean he was as old as 40, which to some of you likes, that's really old. To some of us, it's like, I'd like to be 40 again. Um, But his point isn't necessarily, it's a relative thing. You know, some of you in this room are grown women with children, and you're kids to me, okay? So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a relative thing. Um, But uh, he definitely was was younger than the other leaders of the church. And and that happened, you know, we get older and we think we're really smart because we've had a lot of life experience and we think y'all that are younger are just kind of just... And so he says, don't let them look down on you because you're young. Yeah, they're older than you, but set them an example, a typos. Set them an example in life. Uh, And I love the way Paul does this often. I, I love the way he balances the negative with the positive. Don't let them look down on you because you're, love. You're, you're young, negative. But set an example, a positive, in life. That means a way of life. Set an example for them to follow by the way you live. In speech, in love, and faith, and purity. All of which are things in which any Christian should be growing in maturity. As I was writing this, I had a very convicting thought which was, is my speech reflective of a growing maturity in Christ? For that matter, is my life, my faith, my love, and my purity reflective of a growing maturity in Christ? And and Paul says to devote yourself 
to these things, to preaching and teaching and the public reading of scripture, which would have been very important in, in Paul's day because there were very few written um, you know, copies of scripture and much of the ancient world was illiterate. So public reading was the only place most of them could get. In fact, later on in 2 Timothy, one of the few things Paul asks Timothy to bring him are his scrolls, his parchments, very important to him. Um, and, and he's devote him, to devote himself to preaching, to which Dr. Liefeld says, no congregation ever gets beyond the need for exposition of the word of God, to which I say, amen. We don't know what the gift is. The long and the short of it is, Timothy knew, we don't. Could have been his ministry, could have been the gift of teaching, could have been the gift of preaching. Basically, we don't know what Paul uh, is exhorting him about in there. But what we do see here is, again, as we have seen over and over in this uh, letter, the connection between faith and uh, doctrine and behavior, faith and the way we act. Or in this case, doctrine, behavior, and doctrine. Command and teach these things. Doctrine. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but be an example in how you live. Behavior, doctrine, do not neglect or devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and teaching doctrine. They're closely related. And in fact, we're going to see it again in verses 15 and 16. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, how you act, and what does he follow it with. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Why? Because people are watching. They are watching how you live and they are making judgments on the gospel based on your behavior. So watch it closely. Your life and your doctrine. But who all is he saving here? You know, you'll save yourself and a bunch of other people. I don't think Timothy had the power to save anyone. We're saved by grace through faith. So what does he mean there? I think this idea that Paul has here is similar to what he says in Philippians 2, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think what Paul is saying is that, that we are to be not, not only be careful how we live, but to live according to our salvation. Or as he says in Philippians 1, live a life worthy of your calling. Um, and if you do then you will be not only living it yourself, you will be helping others live that way as well. Calvin said that salvation is God's gift alone, yet human ministry has an important place in the way God works. Well, let's apply all this that we've talked about today. Uh, as As I wrote about this, I thought about the song my mother taught me when I was young. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. For the Father up above, is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Well, God is not the only one watching. Other people are watching our lives as well. Recently, on one of those 100-degree days, do you remember those a little while ago? I decided that because we needed everything out of Dino's storage that day, that I was going to go take care of the last thing. My husband was going to, I want to give my husband a pass here, okay? He was going to take care of it the day before. He was stuck in bed with a migraine headache the whole day. So I knew this was my deal to take care of. He had tried to tell me, wait till I come home, but did I listen? 
The last thing that was in there is a rack that my mother at some point inherited that's a clothing rack. If you're a garage sailor, you'll be like, I would die to have that thing. The thing is, is it's made of metal rods. It does not bend. It does not fold. It is just a head. It's not on wheels. It's just a heavy, big thing with feet. And we needed to get it to the Salvation Army. So Lane and I went down. It's 100 degrees outside. I've got about two and a half miles worth of rope and bungee cords. We carry that thing down, and over an hour later, I've got it on top of the van. Maybe. I'm not at all sure we're actually going to make it to the Salvation Army. And I drive slowly, and I drive through back roads. I'm looking in the back, and I'm telling Lane, just keep looking back there. Just keep looking back there. Tell me if anything falls off the van. So we get there, and a guy comes out. Now, I, can, I need to be honest. Not working with a full deck of cards, okay? <laughs> it's just the truth. And he says, before you untie that thing, I don't know if we can take it. And I said, well, would you go find out for me because I don't want to untie this. It's taken me an hour to put it up here. He goes back in. He comes back out a few minutes later and says, yeah, we'll take that. Go ahead. I get the thing halfway untied, and he comes out laughing. Well, you know, funny thing, we won't take it. And I said, but you told me you would. And he said, well, I'm sorry, we can't. And I said, could you bring the manager out here? So the manager comes out. I do my best sales pitch. You know, if you got garage sealers, they would love to have this thing. My sister would die for it, but we can't get it in the back of any vehicle. And then, no, we can't take it. And so I said, well, then help me put it back on here. No, I won't do that. Well, then I got a little upset. I said, I'm just going to dump it here. And so she, he said, would you like to talk to the manager? Yeah, I thought I was talking to the manager. Could you bring out the manager, please? By the time the manager got out there, I was pretty worked up. And so uh, I gave my best sales pitch to the manager. No, we can't take that. Well, then I'm going to dump it here. No, then we've got to pay for it. I'm like, people want this thing. I can't put it out on the floor. But your man told me, and he's standing right there, your man told me you'd take it. I was told you would take it. I wouldn't have even started untying it if you wouldn't have said you'd take it. And he turned to the, she turned to the guy and said, did you say we'd take it? And he went, no. <laughs> yes, you did! I mean, I was fired up. And so the guy, he, she said, well, he'll help you. I said, and you said, the guy, other guy said he wouldn't even help me. Well, he'll help you. And I said, I don't want his help. So I get it tied up, and I take it home, and it is still sitting next to our garage. Ladies, this was not my finest moment. Unfortunately, it was actually not my worst moment either. Um, It's just one of the most recent. Do you want to know what God brought to my mind yesterday, day before yesterday, actually? What picture of him did I give to these people at the Salvation Army? At some point during this entire thing, the words may or may not have come out of my mouth. Damn Salvation Army. (laughs) I'll deny that if you tell somebody that. How wrong is that? What picture of him did they get? Worse, what picture did my son get of Jesus being alive and well in me? As I'm looking at this guy going, you did too say you'd take it? In 100 degree heat? And I'm tired. Our kids are watching. Our kids are like a police song. Every breath you take, every move you make, every vow you break, I'll be watching you. Every smile you fake, I'll be watching you. Our kids are like that. They're seeing how we live. And they're making judgments about 
faith based on that. Our neighbors are watching. Our friends are watching. What picture of God are we giving them? We know they're watching. The question is, what are they seeing in our lives? Which is why training in godliness, growing in godliness is so important. Because it holds value not just for this life. It does hold value for our life here, but it also holds value in the lives of those around us. Not just for now, but forever, for eternity. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, we are to be conforming more and more to the image of Christ, looking more like him. And people will notice. Last Sunday, uh, Jeff Dart preached a sermon on marriage. And before the sermon, he said, I've been praying for those of you who aren't married, actually, that you would get something out of this sermon. And so at dinner, I said to Katie, hey, Jeff was praying for you. What did you get out of the sermon? I was not expecting what she said. As you know, we're dealing with a son who has walked away from his faith. And it has been very difficult for Jeff and me because we're, I'm pointed toward law and Jeff is pointed toward grace. And it's very difficult as we've tried to be on the same. I get asked all the time, are you and Jeff on the same page? I'm like, well, yeah, sort of. I'm on his page. I have to be on his page. I have to submit. Um, and Katie has been very angry about this. And it's been really hard for her to deal with. And so she has, um, she has expressed that to me at different times. And what I've said to her is, honey, your daddy and I are doing the best we can. I have to submit to your daddy. We're trying to follow God as best we can. Here's what Katie said about that sermon on Sunday. You know what that sermon did? It made me realize that you are submitting to daddy out of reverence to God. That's a good thing. That what you're doing, you're doing in order to honor God. And that's what I want you to be doing. That's what you're supposed to be doing. Ladies, that was both a very gratifying and humbling moment for me. This growing in godliness is important. We are to devote ourselves to it. Ladies, be diligent in the matter of godliness. Give yourself wholly to it. Watch your life and doctrine closely. It is really, truly important. Not just because the Father up above is looking down in love, but little eyes are looking up at us as well. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you that you have provided a way, that you have provided salvation for us. Not only so that we can live forever with you, which would be wonderful enough in itself, but, Father, that we might grow in sanctification, that we might grow between now and that great day someday to be more and more like your Son. Help us to do that, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to tell you one more thing before you go. Um, this week is a long week. It's uh, chapters 5 and 6, but I didn't want to give 2 Timothy short shrift, so I'm sorry ahead of time. There are a few extra questions, and we'll have to condense the teaching a little bit next week. Just wanted to let you know that. So don't wait till Monday night. Exactly.